Welcome back to a special episode of Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former Department of Justice officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. And what a day. Probably one of the five biggest days of the entire probe, the day when Attorney General William Barr came to the Senate Judiciary Committee in a much-anticipated appearance to explain why he had decided, contrary to Special Counsel Robert Mueller, that the President of the United States did not commit obstruction of justice. Barr spent hours responding to aggressive questioning from Democratic senators about his decision-making, layered in with sweetheart valentines from the Republican members of the committee who seemed to be focused on the inception of the probe and Hillary Clinton's emails and the like. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General and also an assistant United States attorney or line prosecutor and a Washington Post columnist. I'm joined today to discuss Barr's testimony and the implications of it by three fabulously qualified feds. First, we're very pleased to have Robert Rabin back on Talking Feds. Robert is founder and president of the Rabin Group, a progressive public policy firm, a former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General and Assistant Attorney General under Janet Reno, and before that, a Senior Hill staffer for Representative Barney Frank. Hi, Robert. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you for having me, Harry. We're thrilled also to welcome back Barbara McQuaid, who's a professor of law at the University of Michigan School of Law. From 2010 to 2017, Professor McQuaid served as the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Appointed by President Barack Obama, she was the first woman to serve in her position. Hello, Barbara. Thanks for coming on a busy day when you're on TV, when you're when you're not running from studio to studio. Hi, Harry. Thanks very much for having me on. And finally, Matthew Miller, also who's been on TV all day, but has made time for this special episode of Talking Feds, a partner at Vianovo, a strategic advisory firm. But before that, the former director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice. Matt, thanks very much for being here. Always happy to be here, Harry. Okay, so let's dive in. Uh, Here's how I I see it. Uh, we didn't know before this morning what Barr was really going to say about why he had reached the conclusion he had. Uh, there were indications that it was simply this sort of binary analysis. If Mueller didn't get to the finish line to say obstruction, you had to say no. That's just how DOJ does its business. That's not what I heard Barr to say principally. I heard Barr rather to say that he and Rosenstein and their staffs received the report on the Thursday or or Friday of the, is this the 25th, I want to say, and in a matter of 48 hours or so, did a top-to-bottom evidentiary review of the Mueller report did not look at any of the underlying evidence, looked at the report, took it as true, 
and basically were able to reach the complete opposite conclusion that Mueller clearly had reached. In other words, that they did an evidentiary review, obviously a non-deferential one, and came out in the opposite way. Did other people understand Barr's basic position to be the same? Uh, Barb, what's your thought there? It, yes, I, I do think that's what he, he, the way he approached it. And I think I would have less of a problem with it if he had been a little more forthright about what he was actually doing. I think that the letter that he sent out on that Sunday night suggested that it was Robert Mueller who couldn't decide one way or the other, that there were uh, serious questions of fact and law that prevented him from deciding. And then he said something like, and so that leaves it to the attorney general to decide, as if Robert Mueller said, it's too tough for me, boss. Here, you decide. And we don't know that's not at all what happened. If if William Barr said, thank you for your work, Robert Mueller, I'm going to read your report very carefully. And now I'm going to reverse your call, because I think if Robert Mueller had thought he could make a call, he would have found obstruction of justice as to at least a handful of those episodes of obstruction that he details. But he thought it would be improper to uh, reach a conclusion or even say that that there was any obstruction there because it would prejudge the question uh, for future prosecutors or for Congress. And so if that's what William Barr is doing, he should say so. But instead, he's obfuscated. And I think that's what prompted this letter of complaint for, from Robert Mueller, uh, that he is being disingenuous about what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, so basically, it's uh, man, I want to serve it up to you. But this is, it, Barr, in, in taking this step, is essentially uh, casting, not more than casting doubt, disparaging sort of root and branch the entire Mueller enterprise. Basically, it was misbegotten. He should never have done it if he couldn't reach a bottom line conclusion. The whole point was to reach a bottom line conclusion. Of course, who knows where Barr got that idea that that was the whole point, but that certainly seemed to be what he was what he was saying. Yeah, I think he kind of gave away the game in some of his comments uh, about the origins of the investigation. Um, there were there were times he really questioned, I think, whether this investigation should have ever uh, been launched in the first place. And I agree with with the way you started this by saying, um, you know, his position is uh, they got this report on uh, March 22nd from the special counsel's office. And in two days, 48 hours, they reviewed it. And, you know, according to what Barr says is they weren't really um, quibbling with Mueller's legal uh, interpretations, his legal theories. He says he disagrees with some of them and the deputy attorney general disagrees with some of them but that they accepted them for the purpose of their analysis and just did an analysis on the facts. And that's his position, but I, I just don't buy that. Um, I don't buy that you got this very dense 448-page report, although the obstruction section is, is you know, less than that, but, but also a, a very dense factual recitation. And you, you went through and examined all 10 episodes, weighed the facts, kind of considered the evidence on both sides and reached a conclusion in 48 hours. I, I just don't buy that. I think he had made up his mind before. Um, and I don't know whether he, he made up his mind because of his uh, expansive views of executive power, which would contradict what he said about accepting. Um, right. He said uh, he didn't take those into that, account. That, that's right. He said he didn't take it into account. But I, I don't believe I don't believe his actual explanation. So I, I don't know if it was that or if he just didn't really undertake much of an examination at all because he, he wanted to clear the president. 
But the explanation that he offers doesn't make sense because in my experience, and look, you all, my experience is watching prosecutors like you and watching the AG deal with difficult cases. There's no more difficult case than uh, an investigation into the president. Um, And I don't remember seeing any difficult case decided this quickly uh, by the attorney general, let alone one uh, of this importance. It just doesn't uh, pass the smell test to me. I mean, I can I can take it farther, and I think, Barb, you would agree with me. Look, you're a U.S. attorney, which he insisted that's how Mueller is acting here, and you have a big investigation that is served up for whatever reason to the attorney general. And let me just start there and say I have never experienced a situation where the attorney general himself or herself simply just overrules a, uh, a prosecutor on, with that kind of kind of analysis. But even so. One thing you certainly don't do is just take it and and leave the prosecutor out of it. There are meetings, there are back and forth, there are decisions. Why did you go this way? Why did you go that way? That's what would have happened uh, in, in the so-called routine case that Barr is continually analogizing this to. He did say um, he offered uh, Mueller the opportunity to read his four-page summary. So it would be interesting to hear if, if Mueller... Uh, agreed with that offer or accepted it or rejected it. But I, I don't. Hey, it's not a summary. It's not a summary. It's embedded. Yeah. It's embedded. <laughs> it's, it's not a summary, even though it said I summarized the principal conclusions and results. I, we were, we somehow all took that to be a summary because he said he was summarizing, but we were. Apparently yeah. Wrong. And they're quibbling. They were quibbling with the terms, like, you know, cruise, but come on. Everyone was saying, I wrote an op-ed on this, release the summaries and not just because of a bar judiciary dynamic, but because, as Mueller said, the the, peop- the American people were, were confused about all this. Um, Robert, I want to raise one point. Barr has continually insisted on the regs, the regime on the regs. Well, it seems to me, though, we, he's lost sight of the big point on the regs. The regs make it very clear. If you are going to countermand or reject a basic conclusion of the special counsel, you need A, to inform Congress, arguably he's done that, but B, give very strong due uh, deference to the um, uh, conclusions and analysis of the special counsel. So what didn't happen here and would happen in either the routine case or under the regs was some kind of deference to Mueller, who, after all, has worked meticulously for 22 months. Barr really did seem to assume it was just up to him, who, by the way, has no prosecutorial experience, to just do this all, you know, de novo in 48 hours without the original evidence. Barr has been pretty straightforward. He he said it was his baby and his job was to smother it, and he did it. (laughs) (laughs) But... It, you, you know, you had to be under a rock to not see this coming. He auditioned for the job by making it very clear that the president couldn't be in legal jeopardy, at least during the term of his presidency. And he delivered to the American public a, a an absolute positive screed about what we were going to see before we saw it. And then we'd had a three-week interim uh, where that was the dominant court. So, uh, you know, I, I, I know that Mr. Barr has a reputation for being an esteemed member of the establishment and has done very, very well in corporate America. 
But what you have witnessed is a person who put his reputation, such as it is, on the line to defend the president and act as if the president is a victim. He went far enough. He talked about it today in the hearing that he expressed his concern. How would you feel if you were wrongly investigated for two years uh, and they came up with uh you know, quote, nothing, end quote. So, but Mueller put him in this position or Mueller, I should say, enabled this position. He did not deliver to our knowledge a uh, report that ends with a recommendation that says I would indict or if I were Congress, I would impeach. And so, you know, you're handing somebody who is the enabler in chief, uh, the forensics and the tools to do what enablers do. You know, Robert, that that is such a good point, and I I, I don't really fault uh, Mueller for that. I, I I can see an argument that does fault him, but I don't fault him. I I look at it as him trying to play uh, by the rules, and not just play by the rules, but bend over backwards to be fair by the president. If I can't indict the president, uh, he can't clear clear his name, and so it's unfair to even accuse him. But you're right. When you have uh, someone that is acting in such bad faith as I think the the attorney general does, and I, I think you believe he he uh, he's acting, um, when you have one person that plays by the rules and another that's willing to to violate them and stomp all over them, uh, it does create this opportunity. I, I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm not sure we want uh, the special counsel to then behave in bad faith, but it does um, it, it does point out this kind of dichotomy we've had for a few years now where kind of one side of the political divide just doesn't care about the norms and they benefit from uh, disregarding them over and over again. Yeah, yeah I've heard now, it said that Robert, Robert Mueller is an honorable man in a world of thugs. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I have to count myself as having been under the rock Robert refers to, although I had, you know, good company in Chuck Rosenberg and Ben Wittes and, and others. But um, it does it does seem uh, irrefutable that that Barr has taken his position or or mission to be representation not of the Department of Justice. He's he's again you know set out to dry the the FBI and um, the 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 leadership there. Not not the American people. Not even the presidency as an institution. But the president. Uh, himself, but he does keep saying that you know he's suggesting that the normal thing for Mueller to have done might have been to reach a, a prosecutive decision. Of course, as you've said, um, Matt, that's a that's a catch twenty two, or or maybe you would say a Hobson's choice because there's there was no other no way to to reach that decision. The only choice was to acquit. So something that that Barter has done that strikes me as disingenuous is try to portray this as a as able to be viewed through the prism of a routine matter and this is what the DOJ does there was no way to do that under any way of looking at it there was this could never have been a normal either thumbs up or thumbs uh, down you couldn't fault him for saying it didn't go normally because there was no normal model for it to follow let me ask this of everyone. What do we discern from the bar side of the testimony about the state of the relationship between Barr and Mueller? We've heard again and again Mueller as the respectful soldier, and yet this the letter that he sent, which and 
the two letters he sent seem awfully inflammatory. Are they and their respective camps flat out antagonists uh, here? Is Mueller respectfully disagreeing? Reading between the lines, where do you think the special counsel and the attorney general are vis-a-vis one another? Well, I think that the fact that Robert Mueller wrote a letter and didn't just pick up the phone, as as Barr asked him, why didn't you just pick up the phone, Bob? I think that it's because he's furious. And that's why he wrote a letter, because he wanted to document it. If it was merely, uh, hey, Bill, I think there's some confusion out there. Let's Let's come up with a plan to clarify it. I think he would have picked up the phone. I think the fact that he put it in a letter and complained about the challenges suggests to me that he is upset. Um, the fact that he didn't show up at that press conference on April 18th, I thought spoke volumes as well, that Robert Mueller was dist- distancing himself from the decision that Barr had made. But um, I-, I think the fact that he wrote that letter is a very meaningful step that tells us a lot about their relationship. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree. Look, I, I think they're basically in open warfare now. Uh, when you look at the way uh, Mueller handled uh, this, they, you know, they made it if, if you uh, look at the letter that was released today, this letter from the 25th. So they actually started by making a phone call on on the 24th uh, before Barr's letter was released to, to complain. They then sent a letter the next day, the 25th. They then sent this other letter uh, on the 27th, the one we now have seen. And it's not just the fact that they sent it, but the fact that it leaked out, I think that's so extraordinary that it leaked at the time for maximum uh, leverage and maximum embarrassment for Barr the day before his hearing. And I think on Barr's side, you can tell how upset he is. Um, Look, he's a guy who you could say he's extremely confident. The other way you could describe him as, as extremely arrogant. And you could see in the way he talked about this that, you know, I'm the AG, I'm in charge. And he looked at this as his decision and he gets to make it. And he was dismissive of Mueller and his team, I think, talking, you know, wouldn't describe them as the best and brightest at one point. And I think he is quite offended that they had the temerity to question the way um, he handled this. You agree, Bob? If Mueller is mad, I think 100% of the public is missing it. The sort of... Uh, you know, it's quite Victorian to express furor by writing a letter, um, particularly when he's dealing with people who are sort of in the Avengers and Wakanda age. I mean, <laughs> in what, literally, in what regime are you operating, Mr. Mueller, if you think you are communicating to anybody that people are mischaracterizing your work? And Congress does not have the opportunity to do the job they're supposed to do based on your work. Come out, come out, come out. What is the restriction on you? And I, and I appreciate he is, he is the Eagle Scout among Eagle Scouts. But it's a long, long wait to St. Peter's Gate. We need you now, man. Do you think that if he gets called to testify before Congress, he might feel um, unrestrained now that William Barr and Rod Rosenstein has said, you could have made a decision and you just chose not to. Uh, if you were asked if you could have made a decision, what would that decision be? Do you think he would answer that I, question? I hope so. I hope so. My experience with him personally and then my experience observing him is, you know, he wants to be remembered as the Eagle Scout. So he's whatever the rules say, he's going to follow the rules, even in an age where 
people are not abiding by the rules. I mean, look, that's just it. And part of what we're doing here, because we've all we've all worked with him. Yes, it's it's Victorian in a way, but we we try to sort of decode it. And one thing I want to point out, you know, he's been working for 22 months with a really dedicated staff who've been going around the clock. And they the the constant his letter, which for him was, you know, 212 degrees uh, must uh, have been preceded by an absolute combustion within his staff. And they're still now, presumably they uh, are had something to do with the leak or potentially uh, yesterday. But as, as Matt says, if they're in open warfare, they are now part of the warriors. So yes, um, he he is he he's going to be decorous no matter what, and I think um, people should be prepared for him to be tempered even in these circumstances. But the general point that there is an open antagonism, and that every there's going to be a tit for tat in the press, and real blows will be struck. You know, I think is uh, is pretty apparent at this point. I think that's right, but I, I I take Robert's point, and maybe I describe it as they you know, again they're in open warfare, but it's an asymmetric war right now, uh, mm-hmm. where they're playing by different rules. And I think the real question, and and none of us will know until we see Mueller testify, and I, I assume he's going to now. Um, the AG says uh, he has no objection, although they haven't given the House a, a date yet, and they do control it as long as he's an employee. You know, I, I would have expected him to. I would have expected him before this week for his testimony to be kind of muted and not very interesting and not go beyond the report. But I wouldn't have expected him to send this letter either. And the fact that he sent, yes. sent this letter tells me um, that he felt uh, somewhat aggrieved. And I, th- he sent that letter before Bill Barr did his press conference, where he doubled down on misleading about what Mueller had done, and before his testimony today, where he tripled down and maybe quadrupled down uh, on misleading the public. So if he was aggrieved when he sent this letter, I can only think he feels more aggrieved today whether that means uh, when he testifies, he has a lot to say, uh, I think it's very hard to know. And by the way, it's not just misleading. I mean, I know Mueller is, is you know, the the uh, Eagle Scout of great uh, prudence and maturity. But Barr, you can piece together four or five statements that basically trashed uh, Mueller root and branch. Tra- you know, he said again and again, I don't even know what what uh, Mueller was thinking in his in his core conclusion. He uh, he uh, overturned him on evidentiary analysis after evidentiary analysis. He suggested the whole um, enterprise was misbegotten. And there were a couple others like like that. There's really if you were listening as a as a Mueller staffer with a sensitive ear, you heard Barr really excoriate your boss. Yeah, they need to get Jenny Ree in there to testify. That <laughs> will be right. no halt. Jenny Ree being 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 an important or, staffer of, or, of of Mueller or Andy Weissman. Yeah. Oh my God. So we're focused on everything Barr said today, and notably, of course, he's ignoring the uh, subpoena to testify tomorrow at judiciary. He may be held in contempt. There may be litigation. By my analysis, his his position is not very strong that the House should not be able to use counsel to question him, and I think it will. He will lose it, but it could take a few um, a few months. But my my question is, 
to, that I you know I'd like to go around the horn on is how much does it matter now? Barr has pretty much shown his hand. We know where he stands. He has done the damage that he's going to, to do by having you know put his final conclusions on things. Does he now sort of recede uh, in importance? And does the House Judiciary or other House committees sort of set him to the side and look to witnesses now? Look to McGahn. Look to Corey Lewandowski. Look, you know, look to Mueller himself. Matt, what what are your thoughts about that? So Barr is apparently not going to show up on Thursday to testify before the House committee. Uh, he's defying uh, their request and, and their subpoena. And uh, I actually think that's fine. Um, uh, he obviously should. Uh, he should uh, honor uh, the subpoena. It's, it's kind of flagrant, uh, flagrant for him not to. But in terms of what the Democrats are trying to do, I don't think they need to hear any more from Bill Barr. Uh, if, th- there is a there's a risk in them of getting caught up uh, in a distraction here and forgetting that the target for them is not Bill Barr, it's Donald Trump. And every time Bill Barr is up there testifying, uh, he's absorbing blows and you're arguing about his conduct versus the president's. And you have really the most favorable witness possible testifying before the American public because he's up there uh, at times explaining why the president didn't commit a crime and his words carry more meaning than even the president's defense attorney because he's the sitting attorney general. So if I were the House, um, I, I would basically move on and start going down the list of witnesses and find a way to make that to, to make the Mueller report come alive. And you may have to fight well to get McGahn. Um, you may have to fight to get Andy Donaldson. But Corey Lewandowski is a private citizen. Uh, he has no uh, no no uh, legitimate uh, reason to resist a subpoena. And I would start going through those witnesses trying to tell a story whether, rather than wasting any more time with the president's, you know, essentially his defense attorney. I would agree with Matt on that in terms of what Congress's job is. But when you think about William Barr and, you know, are we just done with him? Does he just go to the side? He still has an awful lot of power as the attorney general of the United States. And we know from Robert Mueller's report that there were at least 12 other matters that he referred to other U.S. attorney's offices on various things. We don't know what they are. They're all redacted in the report. And so William Barr still wields power over all of those. Um, At some point, those become his babies. And if there are recommendations to charge Donald Trump Jr. or the Trump organization, uh, William Barr is still the one who is going to make the final call on those things. And so I worry that he will repeat his performance in those cases as he did in this case. Barr et al. have every, if, if your job is to block and tackle, and to make sure that your president is Teflon, then he being the center of a fight is perfect. You're seeing what's going on right now. The the conversation is too much about whether we're going to investigate Mrs. Clinton's campaign, whether Barr and Mueller are in a cat fight and who hates whom. Sort of an abstract question about whether you can charge the president for a crime. The opportunity cost of this conversation is 100%. Nobody is talking about Trump and the Trump campaign holding up huge neon signs saying to Russia, help me win. And the more Barr et al. can keep this up, the better for them. The piece that sort of is lamentable is that my people, the Democrats who are doing oversight, I think we're going to double down and triple down on regular order. I think we're going to just have increasing umbrage at the fact that Barr et al. 
are operating under an omerta where they're going to do everything they can to protect this president as opposed to the American people. And Nadler and Cummings and Schiff are going to jump up and down and say how inappropriate it is and how mean it is instead of articulating a strategy about how they're going to demonstrate to the American public that Trump is corrosive or corrupt or, or, or violative of law, they're going to exercise their prerogative as a coordinate branch of government and talk about how important it is that they be heard. That's what I fear. Um, I am cautiously optimistic that someone will come up with a strategy that actually focuses on Trump's corruption, but I'm not seeing that yet. Yeah. And just clearing the field for it, you know, is, is a matter of time. Time is the, you know, uh, the, the uh, um, nemesis in, in, in all of these things. I just want to bring up again this Comey editorial from today, uh, you know, as someone who's really struggled with what's happened to Barr and how does it work, you know, and, and Barr seeming like a very strong customer coming in, but but seeming perhaps to have gone the way of other um public officials and Trump has basically ruined uh, the the Comey op-ed is compelling reading. Um, Let me just just ask um, to people if they have any thoughts about two figures here. One, Don McGahn. I heard Barr say today that that they have not waived executive privilege, which puzzled me completely. But that would, McGahn is also like Lewandowski, a private citizen. He couldn't resist. But, um, the, the White House personally, Trump personally could try to invoke executive privilege, but it seems to have been waived so plainly um, by the publication of the report um, uh, to, to, to Congress. But obviously there's some strategy that says otherwise. And then second, where is Rod Rosenstein going to be in, in all of this? The, um, credibility hit that Barr is taking, uh, obviously, you know, redounds to him as the, as the guy who stood mute and steadfast as Barr has said all these things. Is he going, are we going to see him come forward and second this notion that, yep, 48 hours, we looked at all the evidence, came to a different conclusion, and really put his own prosecutorial integrity or reputation on the line? So I'll go first with Rod. Uh, I'll take that piece. Uh, I, I, If you're expecting Rod to in any way depart from Bill Barr, I, I think you'll be sorely disappointed. Um, uh, I, I have been um, skeptical of his motives for a while and skeptical of his strength. I, I think when the story is written about Rod um, uh, Rosenstein at the end, it'll be that he was an extraordinarily weak figure at a time the country needed someone to be strong. I think he started his tenure making compromises, writing that memo to to justify the Comey firing. He gave he made compromises all along. And I think he's allowed his name to be used by Barr in the closing stages of this investigation for really ill purpose. And uh, I think Rod has kind of made his bed and he's going to move on to the private sector now. And I would be very surprised if we see him step up in any way, become a, a hostile figure either to the president uh, or to um, uh, or to uh, the, the 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 attorney general, you just have to look at his reports that, or his remarks that were reported in the Post last week, where he told the president uh, he was going to land the plane, and then in his resignation letter that was just effusive with praise for the president. Uh, I think he's I think he's firmly come down on uh, or firmly decided what side he comes down on. 
Boy, that one was really stunning. Can you imagine telling the subject of a criminal investigation, don't worry, I'm going to land the plane? I thought land the plane was very disturbing. I also thought it was very disturbing, as Matt mentioned in his letter, where he says to President Trump something like, I always appreciated the your humor and your compassion <laughs> in our private conversations or something odd like that, uh, is just so uh, different from the attacking tweets that we saw from President Trump to Rod Rosenstein. And if... Uh, that's true. What on earth are they doing having private conversations when President Trump is at least the subject of this investigation? So I found that language very alarming as well. I think that that covers it for this Talking Feds Now um, uh, emergency episode. Thank you very much to Robert Rabin, Barbara McQuaid, and Matthew Miller. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to this special episode of Talking Feds Now. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. We want to know what you want to know. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system and federal prosecutorial practice for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum. Thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his beautiful music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time. <laughs>